Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Luke's Gospel. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I want you to understand that you'll find the Gospel of Luke in what is called the New Testament. There are two testaments, uh, two sections, if you will, of the Bible. You have the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, and you have the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. We're going to the second half, and we're going to look at one of the first of those individual books of the New Testament. It's called the Gospel of Luke. Now, we've mentioned this before, but in case, again, you're new to your study of the Bible, I want to help you with this. When you go to Luke's gospel, you're going to find big numbers and small numbers. Big numbers are the chapters, okay? So if I say, find Luke chapter 10, you're going to look for the big number. The small numbers are the verses. And so in this case, this morning, we're going to Luke chapter 10, big number, and we're going to find verse 25, small number. And that is where we are in our scripture reading this morning. And as always, if you do not have a Bible, I would love to give you one. If you'll see me after the service this morning, I'd love to place one in your hand so that you can have one to use throughout the week as well as in our time together on the Lord's Day. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But... A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. And gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go And do likewise. 
go and do likewise. We come this morning to a very familiar story in Jesus' teaching. The story of the, the good Samaritan. Now, it's, it's unique to Luke's gospel in that we won't find it anywhere else in the gospel writings. But it's one of the most well-known of Jesus' stories, even to those who are outside of the faith. Now, I think when we isolate the story, we tend to take it and emphasize lessons of morality alone. But I'm not so sure that was Jesus' intent. And this is why studying passages of Scripture in their context, and by context I mean anytime we come to a passage of Scripture, we need to read what it says above, we need to read what it says below, so that we can understand the whole context, where it fits in the line of the speaker or the writer. So when you study this passage of Scripture in its context, it will help you to accurately understand the Word of God. And when we do that here, we see that the story of the Good Samaritan is not about lessons of morality alone. No, the story of the Good Samaritan is primarily about eternal life. It comes as a result of a back-and-forth dialogue that Jesus is having with a lawyer. Now, for the lawyers among us, I need to go ahead and clarify a couple of things. That the term lawyer here is not the same concept as we culturally think of it. This was not a professional or vocational attorney. The term lawyer here means that he was an expert in the law of God in the writings of Moses, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So this lawyer, he's an, he's an expert in the law of God. And as an expert in the law of God, he approaches Jesus and initiates a conversation with him. And it's a conversation about eternal life. That's what it's about. And again... It's out of this conversation about eternal life that the story of the Good Samaritan will be told. So let's walk through this together in highlighting three specific headers. The first thing I want you to see is what we have here is a good question. We have a good question. We see it in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up. Now notice this. To put him to the test. To put him to the test. So the question that he's going to ask reveals, if you will, the, the state and condition of his heart. He's going to put Jesus, at least attempt to, the test. Now, I don't think he's being hostile toward Christ. But he certainly needs to be humbled if he thinks that he can test Jesus. Because here's this man's mentality. He believes that due to his perceived expertise that he already knows everything there is to know about God. He already knows in his ideas everything he thinks there is to know about the law, about eternal life. And it's stated clearly. 
The motive of his question is to test Jesus in light of his own knowledge. It's not to find sincere reasons for why he should trust Jesus. This is to test Jesus. And it's a question that I think arises out of a heart of arrogancy. Nevertheless, nevertheless, listen carefully, it's a very good question. In fact, it's a great question. And Jesus accepts it as good. When you study the Gospels, if Jesus responds sarcastically to an individual, that means they didn't ask a very good question. It was a bad question. But Jesus doesn't rebuke it here. In fact, he acknowledges it as perfectly good and vitally important. And the question in verse 25 is this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the most important question of life. It's the most important question of life. Why? Because you were born into this world as a human soul. You live in a physical body, but you are a human soul. And while your body will grow old, deteriorate, and one day die, your soul never will. Never. You see, when your body dies, you'll not be annihilated. You'll not even be reincarnated. And you'll not cease to exist. You will live forever. Everyone will. Because we are human souls who live in a physical body. The body dies, the soul goes on to live. So it's not a question of if I will live forever. It's a question of where will I live forever. Where will I live forever? And the scripture is clear that there's only two possibilities. Heaven or hell. Heaven or hell. You'll either have eternal life in the presence of God, heaven, or you will have eternal life under the wrath of God, hell. So, in light of that, You understand that this is a very good question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a question that you need to be asking yourself. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Don't just look at this as another man asking the question. You need to ask this. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the question itself is asked a variety of ways of Scripture, and perhaps it could be asked a variety of ways in this room. What shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God is one way that it's asked. Well, what, what shall I do to be saved is another way that this is asked. As we see here, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But, but they're all related. It's all the same thing. It's all about the life that God freely gives through his gospel, an eternal inheritance that will never die nor fade away. And this was largely on the minds of the Jewish people. They wanted to know, how is it that we have eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. It's the most important question. And it's a question you better be asking. You better be asking. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we see a good question. Secondly, we see a biblical answer. A biblical answer. Now, Jesus answers the man's question with a question of his own. 
Here's the question, verse 26. What is written in the law, and how do you read it? All right, instead of coming out and giving him the answer, he, he wants him to uh, think things through a little bit. And what is written in the law, how do you read it? Now, I love this response from Jesus, and I do not, as some might suggest, believe that it reflects sarcasm any more than the lawyer's question reflected hostility. I don't think either one of those are true. I don't think the lawyer was hostile. I don't think Jesus is being sarcastic. What Jesus is doing here is pointing the man to the authority that can answer his question. Jesus is saying, look, the answer you're looking for is found in the Bible. It's found in the Bible. It's found in the Word of God. So, so he looks to the man who asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? What does the law of Moses say? Oh, this is very important, friends. In John chapter 6, Peter uh, once commented to Jesus, Lord, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Jesus is the one that holds the answers to these questions. God is the one who gives this to us. Friends, if you're asking the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, then I'm here to tell you that where you have to go to get that answer is the Bible, the Word of God. This is so important because many people say, I know the Bible says, but I think... Ever heard that? Perhaps you've said it. I know the Bible says, but I think. And whatever comes after I think is going to be the wrong answer. <laughs> our thoughts, our opinions, our answers are not as valid as the answers in the Bible. So Jesus points this man to the words of God. He says, let's go to the Bible. Let's see the answer you're looking for. And the man's answer comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 as well as Leviticus chapter 19. We can see his response in verse 27. Look at it. And he answered, here's what the law says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What the lawyer is essentially doing here is summarizing the entire law. He's summarizing the entire law. If one loves God supremely, according to the law, if one loves God supremely and then loves others unconditionally, then they will be accepted by God. He's summarizing the whole law. If I love God supremely, if I love others unconditionally, then God will accept me and God will give me eternal life. Now perhaps to us, the next thing we see here is a surprising twist. Because Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus actually affirms for him that his answer is right. Look at it, verse 28. You have answered correctly. In fact, he goes on to say, look at the next phrase, do this, do this, 
answer. I wasn't expecting that answer. Now, why is it? Now, think about this. Why is it that that answer surprises us so much? Because in our Protestant, gospel-centered, reformed theology, we proclaim that eternal life is not earned by what we do, but it is freely given to us on the account of what Christ has done. That's why it's a surprise to us. That's why we struggle with it. Because we preach and we echo and we believe it's not what we do. It's not what we do. It's not what we do. It's what Christ has done. And now Christ says, do this and you'll live. Now I want to clear up a couple of things. One, this is another example of how the New Testament never sets aside the demands of the Old Testament. We have a lot of voices today who say we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We need to cut it out. We need to throw it away. It's not relevant. You cannot study the life and ministry of Jesus and come to that conclusion. Because even Jesus himself says here, hey, we need the whole Bible. We need the law. He's not setting aside the law. The New Testament never does that. We also recognize that the Old Testament is understood only in view of the New Testament. The law is only understood in view of the gospel. An unholy, sinful humanity like us is only understood in view of a perfectly righteous Savior who took our place. So, is Jesus commending works that we must do in order to be accepted by God? After all, he said, do this and you'll live. No, he's not commending works in order to be accepted by God. He's revealing something. He is revealing the inability of this man or anyone else for that matter to perfectly keep the law of God. (laughs) That the very thing this man and you and I have to perfectly do to be accepted by God is in actual fact something that we can't do. (laughs) That's what Jesus is doing here. Furthermore, he is piercing this lawyer's prideful heart by underscoring that as an expert, he knows the law very well. He knows what it says. He knows what it requires. He's memorized it. He can articulate it. But he is in actual fact not practicing what he preaches. So Jesus says to him, you want eternal life? Then you have to start doing what you're not doing. That's how you get eternal life. Do what you're not doing. Of course, the man knows, as you and I know perfectly, that that we're not keeping the law. Because now he seeks to justify his bad behavior. Look at verse 29. He says, in order to justify himself, he asked Jesus another question. And the question is, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as I'm 
to love myself, then you, you've got to tell me who my neighbor is. You see, the Jews, in order to help themselves keep the law, in order to help themselves remain, now look at me, I'm using air quotes here, in order to help themselves remain perfect, they had determined, among many of the other laws, <laughs> which neighbors they were actually responsible to love and which neighbors that it wasn't required of them to do so. For example, to them, their neighbor was their fellow Jews. Love them. Love your family. Love the Jewish blood. Love each other. But you don't have to love the Romans. And, uh, and you don't have to love the enemy nations, and especially not the Samaritans. You don't have to love the Samaritans in order to keep this law. Okay? In light of everything I just said, enter now the story of the Good Samaritan. This is where the Good Samaritan comes into play. We see a good question. A good question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we see a biblical answer. Jesus essentially says, keep the law perfectly and you'll live. Keep the law perfectly and you'll live. And in his arrogance, the lawyer felt that he had. So Jesus gives, thirdly, a piercing illustration. A piercing illustration. Beginning at verse 30, Jesus tells a story about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Notice how Jesus doesn't identify the ethnicity of the man. In fact, the New King James says a certain man. That's how I memorized it. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It actually seems that Jesus doesn't want the lawyer to justify his actions based upon the man's neighborliness. Do you understand what I mean by that? If he identifies them as a Jewish man, then perhaps his mind would be a little different if he was one of his own. So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want him to be identified by any ethnicity. He don't want him to, to, to think of this man as a Roman or an enemy nation or a Jew. or he, 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 just, he just calls him a random man, a random man. And on his journey, this man becomes the victim of assault and theft. It was so brutal, if you, follow the, if you follow the scripture here, it says that this certain man becomes a naked man, which becomes a dying man. He's assaulted, he's stripped of his clothing, he's beaten so severely that they leave him there dying. The first passerby was a Jewish priest. This thing's pretty hopeful. He's a man who is concerned about all things pure, all things righteous, all things holy. Yet Jesus says that the priest, the most important religious figure of their group, didn't even lift a finger to help the man. He saw him and passed by. Just kept right on going. He then tells us of a second passerby. He was a Levite. Now, he's another holy man who helped in the service of the temple. He may not have been as high-ranking as a priest, but he was, he was pretty up there, all right? <laughs> I hate to even do this. Look at it as the lead pastor and the associate pastor. <laughs> the lead pastor comes by, does nothing. The associate pastor comes by, 
And like the priest, he also saw the man. In fact, the verse says he came to the place, almost indicating that if he was on the other side of the road, he saw something was wrong. He walks over there, looks at the man, he gets close to the man, and for whatever reason decides to keep going, not to help. And in a dialogue with a lot of twist, here comes another one. Jesus then says, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan. Now, this is a surprising twist because the Jews would have never thought the Samaritans could do anything good. The hatred that existed between these two groups, as we've talked about already in our study of Luke's gospel, it was insanely intense. It was racially motivated. It was religiously motivated. In fact, and I believe I've mentioned this before, the Jews in their weekly synagogue meetings would actually pray a prayer that God would send all the Samaritans to hell. All right? So this is intense. And so this part of the story would have shocked them to hear Jesus say, but the Samaritan, because what Jesus is saying, look, the hero of the story isn't the priest. The hero of the story isn't the Levite. The hero of the story isn't the lawyer. No, the hero of the story is the, is the enemy. The enemy. So like the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan came to where the assaulted man was lying. And the scripture says he saw him just like the Levite and priest saw him. But what set the Samaritan apart from the other two was that he had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. Now let's tie it back to the question that the lawyer asked. What did Jesus say that the man must do in order, in order to inherit eternal life? Well, love God, love your neighbor. Love God and have compassion on your neighbors. And who is my neighbor according to Jesus? Well, my neighbor is my enemy. My neighbor is the one in my life that annoys me. Anybody have anybody in their life that annoys them? I do. I'm looking at some of them. And you're looking at one of them. Your neighbors are the people you get along with. They're the people that annoy you. They're the people that frustrate you. They're the people that take advantage of you. My neighbors are those people, even my own family, that I didn't choose to be in my life, but God put them there anyway. So what's Jesus doing? By telling this story, he is showing the extent of this command. Our neighbors aren't just those we choose to be our neighbors, but also the ones we didn't choose. The story of the Good Samaritan also shows us the depth of this command, to love your neighbor as yourself. What does loving your neighbor look like? Jesus shows that. Follow along here in the scripture. The Samaritan went to him. In other words, he didn't ignore him. He didn't ignore him. 
he bound up his wounds. That is, he helped him. He set the man on his own animal. That is, he used his own resources. Modern day, he used his own home. He used his own car. He used his own money to help this man. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. He went the extra mile. He didn't just bind up his wounds there and say, I hope you make it. No, he went as far as he could go to help this man. He made sacrifices. The next day, he gave the innkeeper of the inn that he took him to two denarii, which, by the way, is equivalent to one month's supply of food every day. He made sacrifices. And then he says, whatever more you spend, I will repay it when I come back. That is, he continued to check on him. This, friends, Jesus says, is what it actually looks like to truly love your neighbor as the law demands. So some of us came to church this morning thinking we're doing pretty good with loving our neighbors. (laughs) But this is actually what it looks like according to what the law demands. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Let's let's, let's, let's just all do a little bit of inventory this morning. Let's see how good we are at loving our spouses and loving our parents and loving our enemies, loving those we disagree with, those who frustrate, those annoy us. Those neighbors that just moved into us, literally right next door, and we're about to lose it. Love is this. Perfect love is patient. It's kind. It's kind. That's what I say to all you Saints fans this week. It's kind. (laughs) Love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. Remember this when you go to lunch today and your waitress is super, super busy and I'm sorry she doesn't exist for just you. Remember that the scripture says that love is not rude. Love does not, husbands, insist on its own way. Love, wives, is not irritable or resentful. Hey, church family, love does not rejoice when people do wrong. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Hey, love never ends, the Bible says. So Jesus looks at the lawyer in verse 36 and he says, I got a question for you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Or was it the good Samaritan? And notice this. This is so striking to me. Verse 37, he says, the one who showed him mercy. All right, do you catch what he just said? He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. 
That's how much he hates Samaritans. He's not even going to say Samaritan. He just says, well, the one, you know, the one that will go unmentioned, he, he showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, now go and do the same thing. And here it is again, twice now. You think maybe it was just a mistake in the beginning, but twice now, twice he says, go and do the same thing. Go and do, do, do this, do this, love your neighbor unconditionally, perfectly, do this and you will have eternal life. Now, someone comes to us today and asks, what must I do to be saved? Our response is, well, you don't have to do anything. Right? That's what we said. You don't have to do anything. Trust Jesus. He has done it for you. I don't know that we've trained ourselves to look at someone and say, do this and you'll live. Keep the law and you'll live. Be perfect and you'll live. Especially when we acknowledge that the scripture says emphatically over and over again. I'll just quote one to you, Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in God's sight. By doing the law, you'll never be right with God. And that is the point. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus answered this man's question in the manner in which he did in order to point out the sin that was in his own heart. The lawyer knew the law, but he didn't follow the law, especially, especially when he couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. When Jesus asked which one was the good neighbor, his hatred was strong. He wasn't as perfect as he thought he was. Yet Jesus still says, love them and you will live. Now listen to me carefully. Why did Jesus tell him to do this? Because in our sinful humanity, this is impossible to do. The story of the Good Samaritan is impossible to keep perfectly. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to perfectly love others the way the law demands. Why? Because I'm self-serving. But because I'm self-centered, I, Jonathan Dewey Blankenship, will always fall short of this. And that's the bad news that I have for you today. You can't perfectly do this. Now we've got a juxtaposition. Jesus says, do it and you'll live, but I can't do it. I can't do it. And that's exactly what Jesus wants you to know. You can't inherit eternal life by keeping the law. You inherit eternal life by trusting Jesus. He has perfectly kept the law on our behalf. And he died on the cross in our place. If you this morning will simply believe in him, you will inherit eternal life. That's the whole point point of the parable Jesus does for us what we cannot perfectly do now with that being said 
And here's where we'll close. Does God then care how we love and treat others? But what Paul said in both Romans and Galatians, is the law of no value to us because it only shows us just how much a sinner we are? He says, of course not. Why do we take the grace of God and impose upon the law? No, the, the law of God is still important to us. So, so to answer the question, yes, yes, God does care how you love people. God does care how you treat people. And that's the beauty of the gospel. See, some of us grew up in environments where we got this backwards. We were told for 45 minutes, you got to love people this way. And then for two minutes at the end of the sermon, we tagged on, well, if you'll repeat this silly little prayer, you'll get to heaven. That's not how it works. You can't love people like this until you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, until you come into contact with the gospel. Think about it like this. What the law demands, the gospel produces. What the law demands, the gospel produces. Or better said by Mr. Spurgeon, the law tells us what we ought to be. Love God supremely. Love people unconditionally. The law tells us what we ought to be. And then the gospel raises us to that condition. How do I love my neighbor that absolutely ticks me off? You've got to come to the gospel. You've got to rest in the gospel. You've got to see God and his love for you in light of the gospel. And if you get a hold of the gospel, then God will help you to love that neighbor that absolutely ticks you off. You see, when we take the first step of trusting the gospel... To do for us what we cannot do, it is then the gospel's working presence in our life gives us both the desire and the ability to honor God's law. And that, in the end, is the question today. Are we trusting ourselves to keep the law, or are we trusting Jesus and his gospel to produce the law in our lives? As followers of him, we know that keeping the law is not a way to life. We know that. But listen right here, keeping the law is, as followers of his, a way of life. It's not the condition of salvation. It's the fruit of salvation. When a person comes to faith in the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, our lives are then enabled with spirit-infused desire to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So evaluate. If there is no desire to honor God's law, then there's probably no gospel in your life. So how do I inherit eternal life? Perfection. Perfection. You have to be perfect. But I know you can't do that. And Jesus knows you can't do that. So it's okay. Because Jesus has been perfect for you. <laughs> So, on the day of judgment, when it's just you and God and not you and 300 other people, when it's just you and God, 
one-on-one. You can prepare today to say to God, you know, I tried to love you. And I tried my very hardest to love my neighbors the best that I could. You can say that to him. Or you can say, as the hymn writer penned, nothing in my hands I bring, only to your cross I cling. You can't do it. So trust Jesus and you will live. Trust Jesus and you will grow to love your neighbor, all of them, which is a lifelong journey. Trust Jesus and you'll grow to love them as you love yourself. This is the essence of the gospel. Am I going to keep doing in hopes that God will accept me? Or am I going to start trusting and know that he will accept me? Let's pray together.